Well, we are in Lent. It is a time of preparation for Easter. And at North Valley, we decided to spend Lent to look at atonement theories. You know, just real easy, lighthearted series. Specifically, what happened on the cross? I remember my friend Beth Collison, who was part of our church for a while, and we were in seminary, and probably on the very first day of each semester, she would raise her hand and say, the one question I want answered in my time of seminary is, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? I'd be curious to know if she felt like that was answered. Because I went through seminary and I don't, it was not answered for me. But we're going to spend some time looking at that. And as a reminder from Nate's sermon last week, if you weren't here, it's not our goal as a pastoral team to, to land on the right one. Rather, we're hoping to look at each theory, hold it in our hands, and examine it for strengths, for weaknesses, and consider how each of these has, has shaped people how each of these theories change and shift our image of God and how they're lived out. Because we all have thoughts about it. People have been considering and arguing and even killing each other over this discussion for thousands of years. And there's still a question of what exactly happened on the cross? And I think sometimes we want to shy away from talking about these things because we're unsure. It seems as though sometimes it's more of a mystery than we might be comfortable with. But even at that same point, we recognize that something happened at the cross and that at some level, it is central to our theology. How do we talk about this and what is our focus on Easter? We are much more comfortable, at least at North Valley, usually talking about resurrection and new life than Good Friday, the after. <laughs> Let's talk about what happened after the cross. As Nate, and I, as Nate talked last week, there's this constant interchanging of praxis, how we live this out, and theology, what we think and what we believe. Our theology, whether we want to recognize it in the moment, is lived out on a daily basis in our practice. So what we think about what happened on the cross or not, it shapes how we see God, how we love God and love neighbor. It's almost a domino game of sorts, right? It just, right? You see that picture, that image, you can just hear it in your mind. So today, we're looking at penal substitution. No big whoop, that's fine. <laughs> Seems like a good place to start because it's probably one that we are, we are, at least all of us are somewhat familiar with. And if you grew up in an evangelical church, uh, it can and has been for some of us the theory that we've grown uncomfortable with at some level. That might be why we call ourselves, uh, I'm gonna take a Jared Jones, evangelical refugees. That's his term. I usually call it kind of post-evangelical, but 
the same sense of saying we grew up with this and and I wrestle with it. So let's look at it. In the simplest possible terms, penal substitution holds that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross takes the place of the punishment we ought to suffer for our sins. As a result, God's justice is satisfied and those who accept Christ can be forgiven and reconciled to God. The word penal means related to punishment for offenses, so the, the penal system, the prison system. And substitution means the act of a person taking the place of another. So penal substitution is the act of a person taking the punishment for someone else's offenses. And in Christian theology, Jesus Christ is the substitute and the punishment he took at the cross was ours based on our sin. According to this doctrine, God's perfect justice demands some form of atonement for sin. Humanity is depraved to such an extent that we are spiritually dead and incapable of atoning for sin in any way. Penal substitution means Jesus' death on the cross was satisfied. It was God's requirement for justice. God's mercy allows Jesus to take the punishment we each individually deserve for our sins. And as a result, Jesus' sacrifice serves as a substitute for anyone who accepts it. In a very direct sense, Jesus is exchanged for us as the recipient of sin's penalty. There are many passages in the Bible that support this theology. There's quite a bit of foreshadowing in the Old Testament prior to Jesus's ministry, and it's one way the purpose of the Messiah is presented. So for example, in Genesis 3:21, God uses animal skins to cover the naked Adam and Eve. This is the first reference to a death, in this case, an animal's. Um, First reference to a death being used to cover or atone for sin. In Exodus 12, 13, God's spirit passes over the homes that are covered or atoned by blood of the sacrifice. God requires blood for atonement in Exodus 29, 41-42. And the description of the Messiah in Isaiah 53, 4-6 says... Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our inequities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the inequity of us all. His suffering is meant to heal our wounds. Many times wounds we inflict on ourselves, right? When you talk about what sin is, that would be a whole nother sermon series. What is sin? We're not going to go there today. <laughs> the fact that the Messiah was to be crushed for our inequities sounds like a direct reference to penal substitution to me. During and after Jesus' ministry, there are passages in the Bible that clarify 
penal substitution theology further. Jesus claims to be the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep in John 10.10. Paul in Romans 3.25-26 explains that we have the righteousness of Christ because of the sacrifice of Christ. And in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says the sinless Christ took on our sins. Hebrews 9.26 says that our sins were removed by the sacrifice of Christ. And 1 Peter 3.18 teaches that the righteous was substituted for the unrighteous. And if you want any of those references, I'm happy to give them to you later. Because I'm sure, like me, it kind of glazed over a little bit there. <laughs> Which is what I tend to do when a lot of references are thrown at me. Okay, so that was some biblical passages that support this theology. Now let's look at what some theologians have said about penal substitution and the history of it, which I find fascinating. Uh, so the first thing that I find fascinating, fascinating is that the actual theology or theory doesn't really show up in the form that we know it until the 16th century. So in the like 1550s. Uh, Reformers as an extension of Anselm's satisfaction theory. Um, the reformers are who bring us penal substitution. And it's based on Anselm. And Anselm of Canterbury was in 1033 to 1109. And in Anselm's view, God's offended honor and dignity could only be satisfied by the sacrifice of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Anselm believed that humans could not give to God more than what was due. The satisfaction due to God was greater than what all created beings are capable of doing, since they can only do what is already required of them. Therefore, God had to make a path to satisfy this. Yet, if this satisfaction was going to work for humans, it had to be made by a human. Therefore, only a being that was both God and man could satisfy God and give the honor that was due. So that was Anselm. Then, 400 years later, the reformers, like Martin Luther and Calvin, developed the idea of substitutionary atonement further into what we call penal substitution. Both saw the atonement, the requirement of a bloodshed of a perfect human. Conversely, to the satisfaction view, God's honor was not the critical issue, like Anselm would say, uh, but the primary concern was God's justice and holiness being upheld. Because of humanity's sin, both the wrath of God, due to the breaking of God's law, and the righteousness of God, due to our moral impurity that resulted from, God's law, from breaking God's law, had to be satisfied. And the only thing that could satisfy God's wrath and righteousness in this view was the death of the perfect, holy God-man, Jesus. I hope you know when I'm saying holy God-man, it's because he's 100% God and 100% man all at the same time. Not, I'm just like, hey, that God, man. <laughs> I want to make sure I'm not. I love Jesus a lot. So um, I heard myself speaking and thought, you sound funny. Um, 
So this is where the legal aspect comes into play. In contrast to Anselm, this view, in contrast to Anselm, Jesus' death was not repaying God for lost honor, but paying the penalty of death. This penalty of death, the reformers believed, included his actual physical death, satisfying the justice of God, but also meant the bearing of man's sins on the cross. And I say man's because that's how the theologian wrote it, but it's also all people, men and women. Both of which set the believer free from the penal demands of the law. Reformers like Calvin developed the notion of imputed righteousness out of the penal substitution view where, where the body of Jesus Jesus literally took upon himself all of our sins and exchange and in exchange transferred or imputed us with God's righteousness. I'll take your sins, I'll give you righteousness. It's a transaction. Once a sinner repents of their sins, God transfers Oh wait, sorry. I already said that. Righteousness as unrighteousness in this view is often seen as an act of force or power within a person rather than, as in later theories, the faithful actions or unfaithful actions of people. That's a whole lot of theology for a person like me who's like, okay, yeah, so what? What does that mean? <laughs> what is interesting to me upon researching it was, was the historicity, historicity of it, right? That this penal substitution didn't develop until the 16th century. And in church history times, so 2,000-ish years, that's not very long. So what, it made me wonder, what did folks think before then? And what are some points of conflict or tension? This is, this is where we're holding it out and we're looking at it. And we're looking at it from all sides. Here's the theology, here's some counterpoints, here's some problems that people have with it, and we're going to take a look. One of the pushbacks is that the early church, um, that this isn't representative of the early church. This is not the theology that they used or believed. Gustav Allen, in his book, Christ is Victor, argues that penal substitution is not rooted in a biblical understanding. He further argues that the early church father's primary model of the atonement was the dramatic image of Christ overcoming sin, death, and the devil, which has come to be known as the Christ Victor or Christus Victor uh, view of atonement, which we will look at in weeks to come. So, Another potential problem with penal substitutionary as a metaphor is that it presumes that the coming of Jesus is about judgment. that the sole purpose that Jesus came was to satisfy God's judgment and wrath. The interpretation works sort of if we understand this as a cosmic trial and if we understand our relationship with God as broken because of sin. The problem is sometimes that it doesn't fit either the Old Testament narrative. We see time and time again that God is still in relationship with folks even though they're clearly saint, sinful. David has a man after God's own heart, and yet 
The stories in scripture about David are full of this man doing heinous things. Uh, and it doesn't fit sometimes some of the New Testament narratives. How did Mary, Elizabeth, John the Baptist hear God? It also uh, does not, um, doesn't support how any, it doesn't support any of what the prophecies point to. God's justice is an extension of God's main character, which we talk about a lot here as being love. Love God, love neighbor. Some other pushback, some folks see it as unjust. Opponents have argued that the idea of penal substitution is based solely on the concept of a criminal justice system, which demands punishment for transgression. But there is not one criminal justice system in the world that would ever say it is just to punish the innocent in place of the guilty. And we see time and time again, like I already mentioned, we see God, God's forgiveness for folks throughout scripture. And it makes me wonder, where does grace and mercy come into play with this metaphor? And is torturous public execution a just punishment for an inescapable condition? If we really are born depraved, broken, evil, um, then is a torturous public execution the result of like, you have to have that. Sorry, you were born this way, and now we just have to do this. Some um, opponents also say that this theology represents uh, or implies universalism, that it seems logical that if the death of Jesus satisfied God's need for justice, and if humans made no contribution to the process, then salvation and atonement should be granted to everyone, to believers and unbelievers alike. It is unclear why only those individuals who trust Jesus will attain salvation, atonement, and heaven. This argument has merit if indeed Christ died for all alike and his atonement is effectual for all alike. But in order for that to work, we have to put some other theological assumptions superimposed to this doctrine. You gotta add some parts. I'm almost through with the conflicts. Some opponents see it as a form of cosmic child abuse. Uh, in the UK, prominent member of the Evangelical Alliance, Steve Chalk, has popularized an attack on penal substitution, which argues it portrays God as vengeful and unable to have a loving relationship with his son, Jesus. Steve Chalk says that penal substitution is a theory rooted in violence and retrib retributive notions of justice and is incompatible, at least as currently taught and understood, with any authentically Christian understanding of the character of God. And as friends, as Quakers, part of the conflict with this theology is uh, it, that we don't, at the core, believe that we were born evil or broken or... Um, yeah, that at our core, as friends, we believe there is that of God in every human being. And so that 
when we're, when we're born into the world, we resemble our creator as the Imago Dei. There's that of God in us, and so we're inherently good. So how does the theology work with that? Whew. Finally, Scott McKnight writes, what I want to say is not that this theory is wrong. I want to say that the atonement is so much more than this. And if it is so much more than this, then it follows that using penal substitution as our guiding term is inadequate and misleads others. At the least, it does not provide enough information to explain what one really believes happened on the cross. End quote. So I'm not going to unpack that. I really, I really want us all to look at it individually and collectively. Um, so we're going to enter our time of waiting worship now. I have a couple queries, and if they're helpful, great. If they're not, dump them and allow the spirit to continue moving where, where the spirit's already moving you. One question for framing is, how is Christ speaking to you today? Or take some time to examine what you've been taught. If, if this theology represents kind of the theology that you grew up with, try to unpack that a little bit. And how does that shape, how has that shaped your image of God? Good, bad, otherwise. And finally, if, if you feel like God nudging you to share um, a message for all of us, we encourage you to stand so a microphone can be brought so that we can all hear together. That was a really quick, brief, very theological overview. And so uh, I'm curious if God is moving the more pragmatic of how sometimes this is played out in our lives, how, what this looks like, good and bad. And if you might be stirred to share in the waiting time. So let's listen together.